Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Ray Double, AIA, founding partner, and Erica Gasworth, AIA Senior Associate at PBDW Architects in New York City. Ray has extensive experience designing award-winning structures that combine economy, constructability, durability, and spatial clarity with architectural elegance. Ray has been practicing architecture for 40 years, with a primary focus on educational and institutional projects. His work has included projects like the new 42nd Street Studios, Moist Safra Center, the Education Alliance, and various schools across New York. Ray is also a visiting design critic at Columbia, Parsons, the City College of New York, and Pratt Institute. Ray's ability to look ahead allows him to anticipate the impact of zoning and code regulations, as well as potential coordination complications. He is adept at coordinating diverse teams and understands what is needed to make projects successful. As a leader of PBDW's educational practice, Erica has focused her career on the design of cultural and educational projects. She is an effective and organized leader who can successfully manage a team through all stages of a project. With an interest in sustainability, Erica strives to reduce embodied energy while increasing energy efficiency in all of her design work. Overseeing several projects for people with special needs has enabled Erica to develop an expertise in this program area. In addition to designing multiple special needs schools, she has served as a guest lecturer at FIT, focusing on design for people with autism. 
The project we are going to talk about today is the Cook School and Institute in New York City. The new Cook School is an uplifting design that elevates the experience of the special needs students who call it home. This premier purpose-built school consolidates three locations scattered around New York City in a central learning hub. The design serves a diverse age range and provides a dignified place of learning for the unique student population. It is a split campus that maintains the distinct identities of the grammar and high school and limits interaction between the oldest and the youngest students. Larger shared spaces are located on the lower floors. The upper floors are divided in half to create a vertical campus for each school, each with its own dedicated classrooms and stair tower. The school is designed to enhance the students' wellness and independence. They are encouraged to use the stairs to strengthen their mobility and coordination. With ample glazing, wide flights, and frequent landings, they feel inviting and safe. Signage is color-coded to facilitate independent wayfinding, and since many of the students are neurodivergent, special considerations address their sensitivities. Enhanced acoustics control exterior and interior noise using unbalanced curtain wall glazing and specialized interior finishes. Classroom storage was designed to limit visual distractions while allowing students to independently access supplies. Ray and Erica, welcome to Detailed. How are you both today? Very well, thank you. And we're really happy to be here to talk about the the Cook Center. Hi, Sharice. It's nice to be here. Uh, We'll get right down to business. I have to admit that my initial interest in talking to you was because I saw a picture of this building and I went, oh, wow, that's cool. I want to talk to them. Um, not having any idea what the building actually was. And then, of course, I went and trolled you on the internet because that's what I do as a podcast host. And after I did more research and found out that this was a school for kids with special needs, I was even more excited to beg, plead, steal to get you to be my guest today because it's something that's near and dear to my heart with both family members and being an advocate for kids with special needs. So let's start with the story behind this project, the history, the goals, the aspirations. Can you tell me a little bit about that? This is our fourth endeavor into special needs education facilities. The story behind each of these is is pretty similar. In no way to disparage the public school system in New York City, They have an obligation to educate all the children, but the special needs children, because of the incredibly diverse needs and ages, they have a hard time doing it. And it's, it's a hit or miss situation. And often these kids are left behind They're They have lousy facilities there. The education is, is hit or miss. And the parents of these children generally get very upset about this. And so the history of the, each of these schools, the, we did the reschool in Harlem, we did Learning Spring on 20th Street and Cook up in Harlem, they all begin the same way with a group of dissatisfied parents bonding together and wanting to do something. And what they have to do is they have to demonstrate the need and they have to sue the state. So they sue the state for education and for capital projects. 
So the monies come from the state and a lot from private donation to educate these children in a way that's going to work for them. The trustees of these schools, they're private schools, but the kids come tuition free because it's all paid for by the state. The parents are highly engaged and they generally are the trustees. And so you get to work with people that are incredibly motivated to do the right thing and incredibly to do it at the highest level possible. So it's a always have been a wonderful group of a client to work with. Then what happens is that they establish what's called a rate. And the rate is what the state reimburses for each child. And that rate is negotiated usually by lawyers. Unfortunately, these all involve legal proceedings. So that the rate is established and the, and the state signs off on it and they get those monies from the state to hire teachers. And the teachers vary because it's language, it's psychological, it's speech, it's and the classroom spaces are very small. So that's the background of each of these schools. That's the common denominator. But that said, each population is different. The reschool, for example, was very high-performing. Children who often went on to high school and college. Learning spring was a different matter. Those children were all on the spectrum, and they tried to engage them positively, teaching them leaf life skills and that sort of thing, but they were not college bound. And the same goes for the children at Cook. Cook has, a, I would say, a, a wider reach in that the children are all different. Their needs are all different. There's some on the spectrum. Um, there's some with, with physical disabilities. There's some with speech disabilities. And some of them go on and some of them don't, but they do an excellent job of getting these children ready for the next step in their life with life skills and job training right afterwards. And it's K through 12. So it's a, it's a full program. And there have been a, a wonderful and very supportive group and wanting the best for their children. So that's kind of the political background of, of these schools and the passion with which it's pursued. I have to say, I'm sitting here and I'm just mind blown at what I'm hearing, because I also, besides having navigated the public school system with kids with special needs, I also worked on schools. So I, I just think it's it's incredible. Um, there's a lot of really unique and interesting things going on in this building. Erica, can you tell me a little bit about this building? The Cook School is located in East Harlem on Mad Madison Avenue. It's located within a what we call a super block. So basically, it extends from 112th Street to 115th Street. And the majority of the block is occupied by 15-floor public housing apartment towers. And the Cook School is this small but mighty little building in the center of the block. It's, um, there was a deed restriction on the property, so we were limited to a building of only four stories in height. But our building is set up right against the property line or the sidewalk edge. Well, the other apartment towers are set further back and sort of more within the site itself. And so even though we have these very large buildings surrounding us, there's a lot of air and space around the building. And the school is really very prominent along the street face and is very um, visible from coming either up or down the avenue. We tried to create a building that would have a strong street presence, really be a welcoming addition to the neighborhood. 
architecturally interesting and also fun. So the facade across the street front has a terracotta rain screen at the upper floors. There is channel glass along the sidewalk edge so that we can provide light and um, a little bit of luminosity when people are walking along the street in the evenings. The floors, second through fourth floor up above, is divided across the front facade into seven bays with these very sculptural bay windows that move in and out across the facade. So there's a dynamism and a feeling of movement across the front of the building with colored glass interspersed into those windows, into those large expanses of glass. So it's really a fun building to look at from both the exterior and also on the interior. The building is organized in a way where we have brought together both the lower school, the grammar school, which is kindergarten through eighth grade, and the high school, which is ninth through twelfth grade. They had been in two separate buildings prior, and they're now combined into the single facility. But keeping the students separated from one another because of the large age range, also we wanted to maintain the identities of each of the school. The high schoolers are really proud of being high schoolers and they don't want to be clumped together with the elementary school students. Rightfully so. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So the building is organized where the lower two floors have the larger communal spaces, spaces that are shared between the two schools, um, like the cafeteria, a creative arts multi-purpose room, the gymnasium. And then when you move up to the second floor, the second through fourth floors where the classrooms are located, The building is basically divided into two vertical campuses. Elevator is centrally located, and then each half of the building, the north half and then the south half, is dedicated to each of those schools. And so all of the classrooms and specialty classrooms for the elementary school are on one side and sort of migrate through their half of a building. So it's a smaller footprint. It's more manageable for the students. It's more intimate spaces because it's only half of the length of the building. And then on the opposite side, we do the same for the high school classrooms. Well, I'll tell you, that building pops, both from the inside and outside. That thing that you did with the glass on the front, with all the different colors, it is warm and inviting and fun and playful. And a lot of schools these days look like, well, a lot of the kind of new designs for schools look like um, office buildings. Yeah, we really wanted it to look like a place for children. I mean, it, it's a place to have fun. It's a, We wanted the students to be excited to come there and enjoy their time in the building. And so we really wanted to make it a space that has a lot of happy, you know, can generate uh, happy emotions for the students. And the bay windows project quite a bit. So when you're sitting in the bay window, you can look up and down Madison Avenue. So it's really a wonderful experience. And the interest is, is that it's an overly deep site. And so while it's a double loaded corridor, so to speak, meaning there's classrooms on either side, it's overly deep. So what Erica and I did, we had all of the small breakout rooms, counseling rooms located right off the corridor. And then you go through through these suites through a corridor into the classroom. And the classrooms are very small because the, the student population in each classroom is what, 12, Erica? It's- yeah, 12 is the, is the most students will have, but most classes are probably eight students. There are a lot of um, teacher and additional adult support in each classroom, but the class size of students is, is very low. Right. So the classrooms are not just rooms, they're suites. There's bathrooms in them, there's 
small breakout rooms and um, then adjacent to them, there's specialty rooms for, for counseling and speech and that sort of thing. So we took advantage of that depth because we needed the floor area to make it a more um, intimate setting for each classroom. What were some of the design challenges that excited you most about this project and how did you solve those challenges? This project came together very naturally. Right off the bat, we had a buy-in with the faculty um, because we knew they were very good about explaining what they wanted. And it fell into place. It took a long time to, to work all the way out, but the concept held right from the start. And they loved the concept of, of these, this idea of suites and intimacy and the ability within a larger building to create two campuses, as, as Erica explained. The, the challenges, I think, were more technical than otherwise. <laughs> and the technical issues were the gym because of the large large area required is below grade, halfway below grade, and it projects up. But normally you have to have transfer beams to hold the floors above that are set back um, because you have a, a rear yard requirement, but that only applies above 23 feet in New York. So the gym is split in half with the three floors above. And normally that what that means are these enormous beams down below, which are very expensive and cumbersome. And so we came up with the engineer, we came up with this idea of creating a three-story truss, which spanned the whole length of the building. The floors are all hung from this enormous truss, which you can see expressed in the back of the building. I would say that fitting all of the program into the limited footprint was one of the more challenging aspects of at least the programming and the sort of space planning, very early stages. Because of the two schools, and Cook's desire not to have many shared amenities, we have a lot of duplicated spaces. So we have five speech therapy offices on the grammar school side, and we have five additional speech therapy offices on the high school side. We have five counselors on the grammar school side, five counselors again on the, on the high school side. And because of this deed restriction, you know, in terms of, you know, available floor area and things like that, we're very much underbuilt. But because of this deed restriction, our roof level had to be at 50 feet above the street level. And so we were really stretched to fit everything that they wanted in those four floors without any room for, you know, expanding beyond that envelope that we were working within. Were you able to utilize any of the roof spaces, any kind of extra amenity space? All of it. We have a. Oh, a, yeah. nice. We separated a part of it acoustically and, and um, for security reasons from the HVAC systems, but there's a large and full length play area on the roof. So they use that, and there's spaces locally that the kids use as well. What kind of roof do you have that, you, I mean, obviously you've got a lot of activity happening on top of that roof. It's, I would say there's nothing, nothing overly unusual about it. Um, it's a flat slab. It's um, a liquid applied membrane roof with four or six inches of insulation, Erica. Yep. And, and then a paver, a paver system. So it's okay. a, you know, it's an armor roof and it, it works out quite well for them. And, um, because of EPA and stormwater, you know, retention requirements and things like that. So in New York City, you there, based on the uh, lot area, you have to 
either you have to retain a certain amount of stormwater on the site for a controlled release into the um, into the sewer system so that during these heavy rain events, we're, we're not inundating the storm system in the city, in this underneath the city streets. And so um, we have a detention tank located in the in the lowest level of the building in the mechanical area. But also the top of the building is designed to retain water. So there's um, that capacity and that um, area and uh, water capacity has been factored into our uh, stormwater detention system. So that water will pond underneath the pavers and be held until it can be slowly released back into the storm system. And there's a lower terrace. So there are two separate areas at the second floor setback over the gym. One is used for art and one is used for science, which do have similar functions. Were you able to pursue any sustainability goals on this building? So they weren't, you know, asked for explicitly. The building did not pursue any third party um, sort of verification system. However, just due to the needs of the students, a lot of the sort of indoor environmental quality issues that are considered in a sustainable building in terms of healthy materials, controlled acoustics, daylighting, fresh air, all of those things, while they're important for everybody, for a lot of these students who have health issues or um, sensory sensitivities, those were things that were critical in terms of our decision making. And in terms of energy performance, you know, the building is an efficient building. We um, have a um, a high performance envelope to um, limit the amount of air infiltration and heat loss through the exterior building systems. And all of our uh, mechanical systems are designed as high efficiency. We use VRF systems in the um, for all of the heating and cooling in the classroom. So that's highly efficient in terms of conditioning the space. But we did not pursue any other, you know, ab- above and beyond sort of that sort of baseline of, of sustainability. It should be pointed out that New York has an incredibly stringent energy code now, and it gets more stringent by the year. So as Erica said, it's a pretty high performing building. And the, the envelope, as Erica said, is it's a rain screen assembly, and that surpasses the, the basic code requirement. I love it. I mean, obviously, I'm on the West Coast where sustainability is like everybody's middle name. Um, but I love that the codes are just getting more stringent. It's just a given. You know, the hope would be at some point, nobody's even asking that question, that buildings are just built sustainably every single yeah. time. Yes. They require energy modeling now. So you you really have to demonstrate. And it's it's scrutinized. It's not just taken for granted. It, these these calculations are scrutinized by a separate a separate department within the New York City Department of Buildings. And they take it very seriously. There's now a requirement to have green space on on roofs and and if not green space, then then a solar array. So huge strides are being made all the time. And and the city's trying to get off gas. They're pushing electric um, heavily. So you will no longer be able to get gas in buildings pretty soon. Could you talk a little bit about what kinds of things that you had to consider differently for a school of this type to serve the students in your design? We had to consider things on multiple levels. A lot of it has to do with the specific programming that the school provides. In addition to your standard classrooms and your art and science classrooms, there is also a lot of pedagogical programming that is geared towards the students in terms of teaching them life skills, 
we have a lot of teaching kitchens throughout the building where the students can learn how to safely navigate a kitchen. We have a classroom that's set up like a residential apartment so that you can learn life skills like how to use a, a washing machine and a dryer, how to make a bed, because part of the goal, in addition to the general education, is to set these students up to be able to live successful lives independently. And so developing their independence is something that's really very important. So there are the programming components. There's just considerations that need to be given for spatial layouts. The students need a little more room navigating spaces. Um, their mobility are things that need to sometimes be strengthened. They need a little more space to navigate through the building. A lot of the students also have adults who are assigned to them throughout the day. So there are a lot of people in a classroom that need to, so just additional space to maneuver around tables and chairs. Also wayfinding was something that was critical in terms of designing a building that is easily understandable for the students. You know, we're, we're in New York City. It's a, it's a vertical building. It's not an entire school on a single floor. So these students have to move up and down through the building. They're encouraged to use the stairs as much as possible. And so we, want, we wanted to design a building that could be very easily identifiable to the students when they go from one floor to another so they can successfully move between classrooms on their own. Part of the rationale behind the side-by-side -side vertical campuses was to create smaller subzones within the building so that we can have fewer students sort of congregating in, in the area. So all of that can help limit congestion. It limits noise. It helps to keep any of these spaces from becoming too overwhelming, um, trying to eliminate as many opportunities where the students can have sensory overload. That, in addition to their other sensory sensitivities in terms of thinking about the acoustics of the space, the lighting, the lighting controls, really being able to fine tune the building to better suit the students and to create those optimal environments for them to learn so that they're not expending energy having to tune out things or overcome obstacles that the building is presenting to them, but that they can use all of their energy to focus on what they need to be focusing on, which is learning and the teaching that's happening. So it really was across the board in terms of accommodations. We viewed the building as a teacher in itself, and socialization is a huge part of this. And we created lots of little niches you know, that were identifiable by color and lighting for them to sit and socialize. That's especially the children on the spectrum. They need to be encouraged to socialize. So that was part of it. And the fact that physical activity is extremely important. So the stairs are used and they want the kids up and down those stairs as much as possible. So we have a big skylight over them and windows on the side. So they're really, if you've seen the photographs, you've seen how inviting those stairs are. And they're just you know, it's a wonderful experience. They're big and open and there's, they're lit and it's a great experience going up and down and, and they use them. I absolutely love that. Tell me about, um, in a little bit more um, detail, some of the materials you used in this building, both interior and exterior. I'll start with, with the exterior. And as Erica said, it's a, a channel glass across the base of the building. It's a ribbon that goes all the way across, and it has insulation within the cavity, so it's high-performing. 
but it does transmit light. And the administrators agreed to go to the basement. They felt that it was more important for the kids to have the natural light. So they're in the lower level, but we created a big opening. And a lot of that channel glass provides light down below through through a large opening. So that was a really helpful thing to do. And it's wonderful because it we lit it and at night it glows and it's just a wonderful presence on the street. It glows like it's just amazing how it how it holds the light with this glass fiber insulation within. We had plate canopies above that, which were then, you know, aluminum plates that were just suspended from above. And we then cut holes in them and introduced discs of plexiglass to bring light through so that there's this pattern of light under the canopy, which is then echoed inside with randomly placed brown light fixtures that takes you in through the building. So there's this natural progression through. And then it's a terracotta rain screen above that. That's three different colors randomly placed that Erica worked out quite carefully. You know, it is a rain screen. It's a breathable. There's airspace behind the terracotta. There's four inches of insulation and then a metal clad, bituminous backed sheathing material, dense glass, and then then metal stud. So it's pretty high performing wall. And then the curtain wall bay windows, which part of it was unitized, um, but it is, it's the geometry very complex for each of them. And it took a long time to work it out. But cost was an issue, so we didn't go custom. We we believe that you can achieve really good things with standard materials, which we do throughout in our practice. So it's all based on standard extrusions, and you know we figured out how to do it in a way that it translated into the image that we had, especially using the, the colored glass. Um, and it, it worked extremely well. We always engage a facade consultant to help with the specification for that particular piece of it, but mostly to help for quality assurance as, as we detail, you know, as we detail these things. And then above the, the, the bay windows, there are metal panels that are pushed back as a formal parapet, but you don't really read those. Really what you read from the street are you read the shape of the bay windows projecting above. Pushed further back is an insulated metal panel. And because we felt that what you do as an architect is you spend people's money and, and you have to do that really carefully. That's really what you do. And, and you have to be responsible about that. And you have to make sure that it counts where you spend it. But we felt that the gift to the neighborhood would be the street. And the building has a lovely street presence. The neighbors love it. There hasn't been any damage to it. Nothing has happened. No vandalism, no damage, which is unusual for any building in New York. And then the side walls and the back walls are simply these giant two-story centria, thick insulated panels. So you spend money where it means something and where you don't need it, you don't spend it. And so these panels were just the fabulous way of enclosing space. They're triple coated Kynar finish on them and you know it, it, they form a double gasketing system and, and they've just been perfect for enclosing the large spaces. The back facade is clad in metal panels, but then we then we echoed the bay window in the back. It has the same slot of color, but you don't have the bay but you do have the same you you have the same area of light coming in and it and it overlooks a, a park which that was in the super block so you have green space all around but it was really a matter of of using the richer materials where they meant something 
I've just the sort of follow up on one thing about the um, those bay windows. We worked with a really great subcontractor. Unfortunately, they're no longer in business, but they were responsible for the entire envelope system. And, you know, they had ownership of all the different components. We worked with them and with the curtain wall manufacturer on those bay windows. And it's Erie AP. They're, they have a, a shop up in, in Canada right across from um, Detroit. We flew out there. We took a look. They did a mock-up of the bay window. The bay sort of grows in width and then and then transitions back and becomes more narrow. So there's sort of that juxtaposition of the different geometries where they meet and transition from going to wider to narrower. And they made a full-size mock-up of all of those intersections. And we went out and were able to look at it and sort of make sure that there was the quality control there and that they were going to be able to fabricate it to a level that we were satisfied with. So that really helped in terms of um, bringing to reality the the design intent and, and sort of our vision. The huge lesson in that is that your manufacturers and product reps really can save you a lot of time and money if you utilize them in advance, not when a problem happens, but well in advance to make sure that everybody's on the same page and, and this thing is going to come together the way you want to. And they, and they can help you do that. Of course, they want to. They want you to use their product. Um, so Erica, tell me about the interiors. As Ray mentioned, you know, we really were mindful about using special materials in areas where they would have the greatest impact. And so we identified, you know, the, the key areas in the, in the building where we really wanted to place a lot of emphasis were right when you walked in. So that lobby is a real, you know, wow space. You walk in, it's a porcelain tile floor. There are these hanging light fixtures that Ray had mentioned. There are these crystal enclosures that drop down. So they're reflecting light. The ceiling is painted with a high gloss finish so that you get the reflection of the, of the light, sort of these little, we call them these little icicles sort of hanging down. So you sort of walk into this very magical space. And then we have a very colorful donor wall, which rises up on one side on the wall from the floor to the ceiling, carries across the ceiling over the lobby space, and then runs down the wall of a stair that leads down to the gymnasium at the lower level. So you get this ribbon of these colored uh, light block cast resin panels. Each panel is a different color. We use the school's colors for the various different schools so that it's all of the school colors are identified in this donor wall. Um, the panels are uh, removable so that as additional donors are identified throughout the lifespan of the building, they can be acknowledged and added to this system. So the panels pop out and then you can add the signage, the lettering for the donor recognition and then pop the panels back into place. And it's this really exciting tunnel of color that every student passes through to get, you know, on their way into and out of the school. And then, you know, on the upper floors, again, in the corridors, we carry the same porcelain tile. Um, and in the alcoves, we have out bench alcoves for in those corridors for those, you know, opportunities for social engagement. Those again are um, backed with that same cast resin panel. So you have these pops of color but the remainder of the corridors are fairly neutral as a way to emphasize those pockets of special materials. Also, as student artwork is displayed in the corridors, we didn't want the architecture to be in competition with the artwork and the students' work. So everything else sort of color-wise is fairly neutral in the circulation spaces. In the classrooms, we tried to 
standardized the design of the classrooms so that then this way there was sort of economy of scale in the fabrication. So every classroom has similar millwork. They have the similar, um, you know, obviously all the similar materials. We went to an acoustic sheet vinyl flooring in the classroom to help with the um, acoustics within the space. What we tried to do was to balance color, but without having it be very overwhelming in each of the classrooms. So each classroom has a has a accent color that is a um, sort of ribbon of the flooring at the you know around the perimeter or around one side. We have one accent wall of color that matches the floor, so you sort of have this you know consistent floor to wall pop of color. And then the remainder of the paint and the floor finish in the space is a more neutral gray. And then we have the you know colored slot window, one um, in each classroom in the bay front and back. And so th that's really um, how we tried to balance color, but without having it be too overwhelming. And each classroom has an individual color combination. So students can identify, okay, my classroom is the one with the green wall and the red window or, or whatever, whatever that may be. What was the most difficult thing on this this building? The most the most difficult part of any project in New York is getting it out of the ground. Because <laughs> you never know what you're gonna hit. And you know, you do all the borings, all the probes, and it said, okay, we can do a spread footing here, okay. And sure enough, we excavated and it wasn't suitable and we couldn't lose time. So we had you know, we had Severud, um, the engineer who was just fantastic to work with. And they, in a heartbeat, turned it right around into a mat slab and did all the calculations for, for differential settlement. It was a combination, I mean, who knows what it was a combination of, but it had been a very, very, very wet spring and the water level was significantly higher. And, you know, they were excavating down and they couldn't, e they couldn't even get close to where they needed to be. And there was just the, the cost and the time and, and to even consider dewatering the site was a huge source of concern for everybody. And we were, we were able to transition very quickly. Our structural engineers were fantastic. We had a, a geotech engineer that was also looking into ways that we could embed a layer of, of gravel and sort of compact it down to sort of get the bearing capacity that we needed without having to go further because every inch that we had to go further just meant significantly more water had to come out of the ground. And so it was a lot of moving pieces. And to the credit of the team, we were able to get a solution on, on the fly that, that really worked and was able to limit how far we had to go down but still maintaining the the floor levels that we needed because we had a a you know a regulation high school gymnasium that had to get into that lower level and with our height limit it's not like we could just go oh let's just bring everything up 2 inches like we we did not have that luxury and every inch really counted in the floor to floor height so that was probably the biggest challenge that we had to overcome and and we were able to do it you know well which was which is you know testament to the players involved all, all around. What would you say each of you, your biggest lesson learned from this project was? Cook had come from their previous locations were spaces that they had rented. This is the first time that they have owned a building. This is the first time where they, their, their sort of facilities team has, has grown and is much more significant now. I mean, they're, they're, they're responsible for maintaining this building, something that they hadn't had to do before. 
And the person who is now in that role was not added to the cook team until very late during in construction. And he's the guy who's now responsible for running the building. And I think that having had his input earlier, I think would have helped in terms of his level of comfort with the, with the building systems. And there were decisions that had been made due to cost considerations and things like that, that maybe had we had different input, the decisions would have been different. And so I think that um, making sure that you know, all occupants who are, who are going to be in this building to sort of get input and their comfort level with the decisions made help to, you know, limit some of those day two adjustments. What about you, Ray? You know, I've been practicing in the city for about 40 years, and this was the happiest experience I've had, notwithstanding the, the foundation mishap. And we communicated it clearly. We communicated it was going to cost more and they were understanding. But the the lessons learned are you really need to understand the culture of each of these institutions. And they're all different. Everyone, everyone is a different, it's a different culture. And you really need to spend the time to understand that. And we did that in this case. And, and the outcome was just, you know, for me, it was it was the happiest experience I've had doing a building in the city. So I really, you know, Erica had all the problems. I just, I had the fun. Was there anything about this project on a more broad basis that changed your perspective in general about design? I would say that it didn't necessarily change my perspective, but reinforced it is that good design doesn't have to be expensive. And so, I mean, this was, there are, there are thoughtful ways to design elegantly for any budget. And it's just a matter of getting creative and really thinking about it. It's, it's easy to throw the splashy stuff everywhere, right? It's, it's a lot harder to create something that people say wow about and really walk in and, and are, are amazed by when you're when you're limited. And so I think that that's a, a fun challenge and um, something that we aim to do in all of our work. Yeah, I would echo that. And, and just, you know, my mantra is, you want to do something that's solid, something that's good. And, and we're not if you look at our body of work, it's not a signature style. And, you know, we believe that every institution should have its own vision and its own representation. So we try to look at the culture of institutions and try to reflect that in the architecture and and distill it. Cook is a good example of that, a, a distillation of their culture and, and our design, you know, our design aesthetic, um, our fairly loose design aesthetic. We are modernists. We are not postmodernists. And so they knew that going in and and they fully embraced it. And so it was a very, you know, it was a happy experience as a designer to do something that didn't overreach. It hit the right level of what should happen with this very limited budget. Um, we're pretty much running out of time. So I'll just go to my final question. What is your personal world domination statement? And when I say that, I mean, personal or professional, what would you like your legacy to be? What mark do you want to leave on this world? Personally, I'm much more of a sort of small steps, subtle, maybe behind the scenes type person. I'm a much quieter person, I think, sort of personality wise. And so little steps that I can take professionally in terms of being a steward for the earth. So 
every project I can be on if I can push the client to go a little bit further, just a little bit beyond what they were willing to do in terms of building efficiency or healthier materials or, you know, reducing the embodied energy in the building. And so it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but like if I can push them just a little bit, then that building is just that bit better. And in terms of my own personal life, you know, again, little steps that I can do teaching my children again to be mindful of the decisions that they make. And so it's not probably not going to change everything, but at least in terms of my legacy, it will have made a little bit of an impact. Small stones make very long lasting, wide ranging ripples. How about you, Ray? In terms of, you know, thinking about the work that I've done over the years, I'm a strong believer in architecture as a narrative and that every building is a story. You know, every building should read like a book and they should be slow reading. And and buildings that are slow reading are the ones that people come back and look at over and over again. And the big splash is not something that interests me. It's the nuance. It's the construction of that narrative that that interests me. So I believe in architecture as a slow reading endeavor. And you've got to take the time to develop that narrative and to develop every building has its own language. And, and you need to take the time developing it to get to that point where the building begins to solve itself. The, the, the story begins to evolve after you created the, the, the narrative. And I like to think that buildings that we've created are long lasting visually. They're not like, oh, that's a 1980s building when you know everything was concrete and windows. I, I want something that has, a, that has a narrative power to it. That to me is what I'd like to leave behind is buildings that people will look at and go, oh, I looked at that before. And you know, no, I didn't see that before. That's really interesting the way that was done. And not just to be complicated for the sense of being complicated, but to have a slower reading. You know, a good building, a historical building, is a slow reading building. You've got to really study it to understand it. You don't just walk by it and bang, you get it, and you walk by and you've seen it for five seconds and you go, oh, cool. Um, that's not what we're interested in. I, you know, that we want to leave behind buildings that have a narrative, have a story, and that story relates to the institution. The other thing is teaching, is the younger people and, and teaching the craft of architecture because it's not easily learned. Whatever I can do to help nurture the next generation when when they can take their earphones out, it's great. Um, so that's that's what I focus on now. But you got to get the earphones out. You know, it's not you can't do it with the headphones on. <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. Um, Eric and Ray, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an absolutely delightful interview. Well, thank you. It was a really a pleasure. It was really a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.